It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today I've got with me David Hughes. Hello, David. Hi there. And do you want to tell us what your role is, who you work for, and, and how that relates to the film industry? Well, yeah, basically, um, I've been making trailers for a bit over 25 years now um, at various companies. And 11 years ago, I started my own company called Synchronicity, and um, we primarily produce trailers, although we also do all the other audiovisual things from TV ads to radio ads to sizzles, showreels, um, online content, all of the stuff that you'd expect from, you know, uh, from a trailer house, basically, outside of trailers, and we work from the biggest studios down to the smallest independents, and um, we enjoy working on all kinds of films across the board, really. So what when 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 you when you're approaching a trailer is a trailer something you advise based on a film or is a trailer something people ask for? Um, so, sorry, can you repeat the question? Yeah, is is a trailer something you advise based on looking at the film or is a trailer something that I say I want this in the trailer? Ah, I see what you mean. Right. Well, um, I mean, mostly we get approached by. Um, the distributor, but though, although it's, you know, oftentimes it's also independent producers. Yeah. And uh, at the point that they finished making the film, there is, um, uh, or, you know, all of a sudden they realize that they might need some marketing materials to go on with it. And as you know, from making, when you're making a film, the last thing you're thinking about is what you're going to do uh, with the trailer and the sales materials, etc. So it's sort of usually towards the end of the post-production period. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is different from, let's say, a distributor who would come to you and say, we've got this film we're releasing in three months' time. Uh, we'd like you to come in, look at the film, take a brief, etc. But when we're dealing with independent producers, um, they sort of vaguely know that they need a trailer and they kind of know what trailers look like because they've seen them before, but they don't really know what the shape of the trailer that, that, um, uh, that they need for their film is. Mm. Um, and our first question is, well, there's two questions, but the first question is always, well, do you actually need a trailer or should you wait for the distributor to, um, uh, to decide that they need one? Oh, and the second question... Uh, and well, and the second question is not to do ourselves out of business, but you know we make relationships with people, and we usually work with them throughout throughout the process. But yeah. and the second question is, um, uh, you know, the, uh, do you need? Well, yeah. So the first question is, sorry, do you need a trailer at all um, at this point? And the second question is, what kind of trailer um, do you need if you do need a trailer? Is it something that? sort of represents the film as the director might wish it to be represented, or is it something that kind of um, takes into account, as every trailer should, the needs of the audience to be kind of attracted to see the film? So, you know, oftentimes the, the producer, and especially the director, 
might be kind of the worst people to to make the trailer themselves, but that doesn't normally stop them. And then you find that the director really wants a trailer to be exactly the same length as the film and in the order, uh, and with all the shots in the order of the of the film uh, that they've made. Because who would want their you know beautiful tapestry cut up into a thousand pieces, put in back together in a different order with different music and and a voiceover talking you through it, you know. I get, so, I get the impression um, what you're saying there, I mean, and, and thinking what I kind of what I basically understand is, you as a, an independent producer might well want a trailer to help you find distribution, and then what might happen after then is the distributor will cut or get a trailer done, which is about selling the film to an audience. So this. Well, exactly. I mean, that's basically the, the the general answer to to question number one. It's yes, you don't necessarily need a trailer that's public facing mm-hmm. um, that an audience is going to see, but you want to make something uh, that kind of acts as a shorthand selling tool, you know, the sizzle, not the steak, that will get people interested in actually seeing the film. Because obviously, you know, taking... 90 seconds of somebody's time these days is quite, is ridiculous, it's quite difficult. Yeah. Um, I, w- I once had a distributor pause a 30 second TV spot that I was presenting to them uh, to like take a phone call or to, you know, to, t- <laughs> to talk to somebody. Seriously? So, yeah. And, and you know, this is when, when uh, attention spans are a lot longer than they are now. So um, let's say, you know, you've got a, you've got a, a 90 minute to, to two hour film that you'd like people to look at. Yeah. Um, whether they're interested in possibly making, uh, you know, picking it up to do international sales or whether they're interested in whatever their interest is, the trailer is kind of, you know, you might have put a poster together or something like that yourself or, you know, you, you have some kind of idea of what the visual um, selling of the film should be and you might even have a little reel of clips or you know or a clip or something that you that you like to show people when they ask to you know to see some of the film but you know if you're going to get them in to see a 90 minute to two hour film you better whet their appetite as if they were going to the cinema as a punter really Mm. because that you know it's just the best way to grab the attention so in a way when you when you make your first trailer or you commission your first trailer you don't need to worry about whether this is the trailer that's ultimately going to go into cinemas and online to to show off your film what you want to do is say here's a a trailer that feels like it could be um you know on youtube or in cinemas but doesn't uh, but doesn't kind of commit the distributor to using that trailer down the line but at the end of the day, you know, distributors and sales companies, they are people who watch movies and they watch trailers. And so there's nothing wrong with appealing to them in the same way that you'd appeal to any member of the public, really. And just going, <laughs> going, going ahead and making a, a 90 second to, to two minute trailer or even a teaser trailer that's kind of maybe 60 seconds long that just kind of gives them an impression um, of the film. Treat them as, as you would if you'd just made, you know, Justice League or Wonder Woman or or whatever, and um, and give them something that they can look at and say, I know I can help. I, I know I can sell that film because this is a tool that I can use to encourage international distributors to buy the film based on the fact that they may look at the film and say, Well, that's fine, but I don't know how I'm going to sell it. If you answer that question for them in advance, you've already done a great big chunk of, of the work that they would need to do to sell your film. So in a way, I know you don't have any money left at the end of the 
production period. But, you know, if you can find a bit of money to, to put a trailer together, it will serve you until a distributor, you know, hopefully picks it up and says, OK, Sonny, we'll take it from here. And then they may or may not, you know, commission a trailer from us or from somebody else based on the trailer that you've already made. Or they might do their own thing, depending on what their kind of house style is or what the needs of the audience at the time are. But certainly having one to begin with is a really good way to, to show that you kind of mean business. And just as importantly, that you understand the business and that you understand that at the end of the day, you haven't made a film in a vacuum. You've made a film that's meant to be seen by an audience. The audience <laughs> will need to be persuaded yeah, to yeah. see it. It will be a trailer that needs to work alongside the trailers for, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and Fast and Furious 8 or whatever the blockbuster of the week is. And how are you going to put your head above the, you know, how are you going to make some noise, put your head above the parapet and say, hey, this is a film worth uh, paying attention to? Now, look, taking, taking what I assume is your best case is, is like the ideal, not the best case, the ideal scenario, which is you say a distributor comes along to you three to six months ahead of release date and wants you to cut a trailer for their movie. Um, and you, say, you were saying that you get brought, you get brought in at that early, st early stage in the process, so there's time to look, to look at the film, talk about the film and then cut a trailer. So do you want to talk us through that, you know, give examples if you can, but to keep it anonymous if it's, if it's better for, for, for business. Um, what, what's that conversation like with distributors about what you see as being the opportunity and what they want and how you bring, I guess I'm saying, how do you bring your expertise to the process of trailer making? Well, I, I suppose generally it's different every time, but they probably, but the, but the different approaches probably fall into a small number of categories. I mean, direct, uh, sorry, distributors that we work with um, often mm -hmm. would basically, you know, we'd have a shorthand with them. They would come to us with uh, with, with a film uh, of any <coughs> particular kind and say, you, you know, you know what you're doing, uh, so have a go. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, basically that that's often happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's they that's wouldn't that's necessarily good. give us specific elements of a brief um, because, you know, we've worked with them before and we kind of know the sort of thing that, that they like, let's mm -hmm. say. But if it's a case where a distributor is coming to us for the first time or a producer is coming to us for the first time, then obviously, you know, they, they feel like they would need to give us as much of a brief as possible. And um, so we would often... Uh, the first thing is always, even before I would kind of, you know, budget a trailer, the first thing would always be to, for me to look at the film um, uh, with the editor that I think might be, you know, appropriate for it. And basically we sit down together and the first thing we do is watch it as audience members. So we're not looking at it from a trailer point of view, uh, but we're looking at it as, as we would if we were in the cinema, you know, um, uh, you know, seeing it for the first time, so, okay. that, so that we let it do what the film is meant to do. That's that seems of appropriate, course. and it seems a respectful way to to approach each individual film. Yeah. And then the next thing is, well, you start to think, okay, so what will we do to um, to sell that film? Now, it may be that the film is a very easy sell because there's one kind of plot through line. You know, a, 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 a couple plot to um, insinuate themselves into the lives of a, a, a of another couple in order to steal their child or yeah, their yeah. house or their car or whatever it may be, <coughs> Got right? Got um, so then you, you're like, okay, so how do we tell that story with the maximum uh, dramatic impact in 
let's say 90 seconds because 90 seconds is a pretty good length to aim for um, for any trailer for for a non you know gigantic superhero blockbuster whatever mm -hmm. so you know that's the first question really how do you sell that plot and you've obviously got to think of because you know the plot is important you've also got to think of well you know are the actors recognizable enough to um uh, to, to name check them. Are there any reviews that we might want to include on captions because you don't want to cut a trailer that you suddenly find you have to kind of uh, shoehorn captions into? Um, is there a voiceover in the film that might work as a narrative for the trailer? Um, is there a perfect way to set up the um, uh, the hook of the trailer? Every trailer kind of needs a hook. You know, you need to decide where in the film. You, you leave it mm. so that the audience is wanting more. And you find with a lot of these trailers that run two, two and a half minutes these days, that they kind of, they've had you at hello. And then, you know, so 60 seconds in, you're kind of hooked. And then by the end of two minutes, two and a half minutes, you're like, ah, oh, either I feel like I've seen it or I'm just bored now, you know? And that's the sign of a kind of a, a, um, a, a, a almost a timid distributor or a timid trailer maker where they, they they're kind of, making what we call a Winnebago, you know, a trailer with everything in it. And actually, you know, you okay. don't need all that. You don't need all that extra stuff. You, you've got to find the point in the, in the trailer where you've got the audience on the hook, and then you just need to not screw it up. I don't know if I can swear on the podcast, no, but no, okay, um, okay. Uh, <laughs> your job then is to, to hold the audience and not let them go once you've got them. So if you've set up a premise that is attractive... Don't then, you know, uh, ruin it by kind of showing them so much more that they didn't need. Just figure out where the, where the hook is. So that's quite important. You've also got to look at, is the music in the film, which may be great, appropriate for the trailer? And it's often the case where um, the, the music in the film works brilliantly in the context of the film but maybe it just doesn't have that kind of drive that you need for the um uh, you know to drive particularly the second act of the of the trailer yeah so you need to think about maybe using a library music piece and we always try to go for a piece that we know from the outset is affordable based on the the you know uh, the overall budget of the film because yes we could use you know a, a track by Miley Cyrus or Eminem or Metallica or whatever, but yeah. if you're not going to be able to license it and eventually you want this trailer to be seen publicly, you might be using it privately for now, but there's no point in using a $200,000 track on the trailer, um, even if it's, you know, super cool, mm. because down the line you're going to have to find a crap version of that and, you're, you know, you're never going to be happy with the, with the compromise that you made. So much better to find the perfect piece of music that works for the trailer that you've got. So all of these things we talk about in advance with mm. the client, whether it's the, in, an independent producer or whether it's a distributor, and we'll say, okay, well, this is what we see as being the shape of it, um, but can we kind of show you what we mean? Because I always love to get the first cut of the trailer into the hands of the, of the client as soon as possible. Not that we kind of rush it. We say, you know, it's going to take like five to, five to six days from the first time we receive the film to the first time we deliver a cut. And sometimes yeah. it's faster, sometimes it's quicker. But we build in that kind of, what, you know, uh, what I call percolation 
time because sometimes you know you get that we I don't know why we seem to get more difficult movies than than anybody else so you get a difficult film like the transfiguration or childhood of a leader or harmonium um uh you know uh, that that aren't quite easy that aren't easy to look at and immediately say that's what the shape of the trailer needs to be yeah 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 um and you know it takes a little while to kind of to to kind of figure out what the um, uh, what it's going to look like, what it's going to sound like, what story that you're telling, and how much of the story to reveal. I mean, we're, we're working on a, um, or we're getting ready to work on a trailer for a film that has kind of two or three um, major plot lines that all work intricately well together in the film. But we're almost kind of thinking, should we pick one and, and follow that and let the audience discover for themselves? You know, much like when we work on the trailer for... Um, a film that that has dramatic, um, that, you know, that has dramatic elements, um, but or that is primarily a drama, but has a few humorous moments. Yeah. You know, we might slightly uh, bend bend the trailer towards those hu human uh, humorous moments um, because we know that leavening the the drama with a bit of humour is always helpful in a trailer, even if the ratio of funny to you know, tragic or whatever, isn't necessarily reflective of the way it is in the film. The audience kind of is trailer aware and they understand that, okay, I know that there's a couple of funny bits, but this isn't a comedy. I'm not being missold this film because I'm very, you know, co conscious that we shouldn't be misselling films because that just creates, you know, <laughs> resentment and bad word of mouth and what have you. So all of these factors basically drive that initial conversation that we would have with the client before we kind of... Put a, put a cut in their hands. And, and how much of the conversation with the client is about the rest of the marketing mix and where the trailer fits in with everything, all the other... I'm talking about, obviously, that situation where you've, are, where you've, where you've got a distributor coming to you who's kind of half, half already organised on the plan to release it. Are you, are you, are you talking through where the, where the trailer will sit in, in that marketing plan? Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's often the case where um, we've obviously become in at a stage where we haven't been privy to lots of meetings. So quite often an editor will say to me, saying this, and I, and I will always can, say... David, can you just repeat that? You dropped off when an editor says what? <laughs> oh, sorry. Well, no. uh, an editor will, will sometimes say when, when we're discussing the film, well, why would they want to do that? Yeah. You know, about something that the client has asked for or whatever. And I say, well, you know, I, I don't, sometimes I can explain it and sometimes I can't. But, right. but I do know that there are a lot of meetings that we haven't been to. Okay. And I also know that these days, um, marketing directors, the people who generally commission trailers fr from us and other companies, are, they do know what they're doing. So you can't just say, oh, well, you know, what do they know? Let's just go and make the trailer that we think should be made. You know, we, they, are, they are in their jobs because they are good at those jobs. Yeah. And so what they have to say is obviously valid. So if they say we're steering away from this, um, you know, there was a film recently where they said, um, it was a big animated kids movie, and they said to us, um, yeah, but uh, this is after we'd made the first cut, actually. And they said, yeah, but actually we want to play down that aspect of the film because it didn't test well. And we obviously weren't aware of that when we were cutting the, the first version of the trailer and neither 
was the client, mm. but they had subsequently done some testing and found that a particular aspect of the film didn't test that well. So they said to us, oh, can you kind of leave that out or get that out of the way in the first five seconds and then get on with the stuff that the kids actually seem to like? Yeah. So, you know, that's a kind of... Um, that, that's that's uh, a factor that always uh, or that often plays in, which is us not being aware of the meetings that led to the brief. Mm. So basically, when that brief comes in, the client is going to say, uh, "Okay, we've looked at this. Is what the the client would do before they kind of commissioned the trailer. They would uh, and and what independent producers could do if they haven't done it already. Um, they would look at the comps, right?" Uh, as you know, they would say, what are the comparable films that have been released in the UK um, or, you know, wherever you're making the trailer for, but let's yeah, say the UK because yeah. um, it's BritFlix. Um, and uh, where does it fit into that landscape? And what are the, um, what are the, uh, the beats that the, the, the films of that particular uh, genre or that particular style or, or whatever, where they were hits, what did they do? So we're not going to look at the trailer for, um, y- you know, the last big thriller, the last big hit thriller mm. and say, oh, let's make a trailer that's just like that. But you've got, you have a general awareness of, of what has worked in the marketplace course, and how course, those yeah. films were sold. Just as if you're, I mean, I'm, you know, a screenwriter as well. And when I'm working on a science fiction film that's in a particular, let's say I'm making a time travel movie, you can bet that I'm going to look at every other time travel movie before I work, before I start work, just to make sure that, you know, I haven't unconsciously stolen something from some film or that, uh, you know, it hasn't already been done or any, you know, any of those things. And so obviously when you're making a film, you, you sometimes do, particularly independent films, I don't know why this happens, but you sometimes do make the film in a, in a vacuum, and then you think, right, so who is this film aimed at? <laughs> you know, these are marketing questions mm. that are often not addressed because you've come up with an idea about uh, a guy in India who loves movies, so he turns uh, a, a disused cinema into a, 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 you know, a movie palace and starts showing big Hollywood blockbusters, but he has to cut musical numbers into them because otherwise people won't go to see them. When you've, when you've made that movie, yeah. then you're like, okay, what do I do with it now? <clears throat> well, then the distributor would say, well, you know, it isn't so much like the Viceroy's house, but it's kind of like Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. So let's look at what the poster looked like for that. Let's look at how, it, you know, oh, you haven't got the cast, so you can't put big faces on the poster. Mm. You can't put cast captions in the trailer. That's a no-no because your cast is kind of unknowns. But you've got this guy that people know and they like him and so maybe we can make him prominent on the poster but don't worry too much about the other um uh, characters or the other actors um or you know time after time i see people making the same mistakes and th- that they've put a cast of unrecognizable people on the poster for let's say a horror film mm. you know not realizing that they're actually even though they've got nice cast shots or whatever, they're actually kind of doing themselves a disservice because unless you've got a, an, an actor in your film that will mean something to the audience, or then, you know, maybe going with a poster with, with cast faces on is not the best thing you can do because, you know, if you haven't got 
if you, you know, it's also true if you've got an action movie that doesn't have any stars in, why would you put the, you know, the cast prominently on the poster when maybe a teaser image would sell the film better, you know? So you have to kind of think about those things. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Moving on to the the, the, the independent producers, which is, I think, where the conversation starts. Mm-hmm. I think that you've given us a good, good overview there of the kind of process and the kind of thinking behind and decisions that get made as to what, what formulates sort of marketing plans and when trailers feature in it. But then... The reason we came talking together was a post you'd made on a, on a producers network group on Facebook about advice you've been sort of found yourself regularly given to new first time feature makers or inexperienced feature filmmakers who who have kind of put all their efforts into obviously the Titanic experience of trying to get a film made and that's an achievement itself and then they kind of go right we've got a movie now what the hell do we do with it and then they turn up at your door. Right, and they go, and, and let's say you've gone through that conversation that they do. That they do. Let's take the uh, like a kind of self distribution model. Let's someone's come to you who's planning to use our screen to get get their film seen. So they're going to need a trailer themselves. So they do need a trailer. But what what are some of the questions you get asked at this stage, which aren't necessarily directly relevant to you, what you do as a trailer maker, but you've accrued knowledge of what other films do and don't do in terms of trying to get their film out there so for example i guess i guess a good point i think one of the things you mentioned was about where social media campaigns fit in with this yeah what's been your experience of that that you've been able to pass on to people well i mean this is the thing you know it's like uh, i I often find that they approach us because they want to start thinking about making a trailer or a poster um for the film and so they kind of come to us because uh, you know we work with a lot of independent distributors and they sort of say well have you talked to these guys kind of thing so and then i find that when we actually sit down normally after i've seen the film so that i kind of know what uh, know what kind of film we're talking about i then find that 90 percent of the conversation is not related to the trailer because there's so much other stuff that they should be thinking about mm. and that they, they you know, they've started thinking about, but they haven't really got a handle on um, as yet. And as you mentioned, there is the social media question, how early do you start a social media presence for the film? Um, should that come in stages? You know, because quite often you'll find that, that people who are excited about making their, their film uh, will have... Um, some activity from the cast and crew. Uh, They'll have some photographs out there maybe that, you know, when do you start to kind of control the narrative on social media? How Mm -hmm. early should you you start doing that? Well, what you don't want, I guess, is if you're looking to, if you hope that the film is going to be picked up by, you know, let's say Fox Searchlight or or some UK distributor and that they're going to want to have everything, what you don't want is for you to have done some kind of half-assed thing. You've put a kind of, you know, homemade trailer or clips out on the internet, and you know, you've sort of let this stuff um, go out in the wild. People who uh, the distributor who who picks up your film will want to control the narrative completely around the selling of your film. So you can actually, in a way, kind of work against yourself by putting too much excitement out there too soon, if you plan to get, or if you hope to get a blue chip distributor um, for your film somewhere down the line. Now, the chances are 
that if you're making a film of a big enough scale, you probably have such a distributor or at least a sales company lined up because that was part of the, the, the deal that got you the financing in the first place. So let's look at the producers who haven't thought about um, uh, uh, selling the film to, to another distributor and are looking to distribute the, the films themselves, as, as you mentioned, th through some sort of self-distribution framework, whether it's um, getting on, uh, on board an expert um, who, uh, of, of, of which you know, there are a few in the UK who, yeah. who literally have like a little black book of cinemas that they can make bookings um, and might even get you into a picture house chain or, or a Curzon chain or something like that if, if the, you know, the film is really worthy of it. So what can you do to help that, that, that person? Because we don't deal with the kind of distribution and actually getting films on screens. What can you do to arm them with the best possible material that you can give them? Well, uh, going back to the beginning, you basically treat the person who's going to be receiving information about your film as though they were the me a member of an audience. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, a trailer that they feel that they can put straight in their cinemas to sell your film to their audience, then that obviously goes a long way towards solving a problem that they would love to have solved for them. Right. If yeah. you've already said, we understand that a film is not a trailer. We understand the difference between the needs of marketing and the, and the, you know, the, the, the film itself. That's a great thing to have already. Right. If you've already got a few critics quotes uh, from, you know, critics people have heard of that. Um, uh, that can help drive that person's interest. You know, if if the uh, if um, you can call a cinema and say, well, it's got four star reviews from Little White Lies, Empire, The Guardian, whatever. Obviously, that's fantastic. But how do you get that without hiring a PR company, having a release date set in stone that will bring critics out to see your film? Um, well, there are ways around that. You know, critics like to eat. That's one of the peculiar things about um, about critics these days is that they'll work for food, and basically, <laughs> if there, there is a, a you know, I've, I've, I'm a member of the the UK critic circle. Yeah. And I asked this question particularly. You know, do you always have to have a release date for a film before you'll um, uh, before critics will? Go, you know, because I'll go and see anything, but, you know, do you have to have a release date before the critics will come out? Or are there critics who will come and take the temperature of the film for you on behalf of critics? Now, obviously, there isn't a hive mind as far as critics go, but, you know, there is a certain, um, uh, you know, there is a certain sort of metacritic feel out there. You'll always have one critic who hates something that everybody else loves, and you'll have one critic that loves something that everybody else hates. But generally... So you can't get a consensus, uh, uh, you know, 99 times out of 100. But generally speaking, if you show a film to half a dozen critics, you'll get a really good sense of how the film is going to play critically. Now, here's the crucial thing that people would seem not to be aware of. When you throw, it in, throw the film into a festival, if you're lucky enough to get it into a festival, and people will see the film, they will then review it, and you have no control over what they say about it. Right. Yeah. You're not from that point on. You're not controlling the narrative. So you look at a film that, that is screened in, you know, whether it's Cannes or whether it's Venice or whether it's Raindance or whatever it happens to be. Once the cat is out of the bag, you no longer control the story. So let me ask you this or let me propose this. 
what if you held a screening for a select number of critics that you re that you reached through the critics um, the the the, uh, the the critical body the the body in the UK that represents uh, the top flight film critics the UK Critics Circle, and you said to them, we are hosting a pre-release screening. We're thinking the film will be released around November or whatever. Um, we'd like to invite you to see the film before anybody else, and maybe we'd ask that you hold back your reviews until we have a firm release date or whatever, whatever. But, you know, please come and see the film and give us your verdict on it, right? Yeah. Now... Bear in mind that critics will go and see films that they know they're going to get paid to write about. So if you end up never having a distributor for your film, then they're not going to get paid for coming to that screening. And also bear in mind that they have four or five, sometimes more, screenings per week. So they can't afford to miss The Handmaid or what, you know whatever film they, they are planning to see on Thursday at 6.30 in the evening to come and see your film, which doesn't even have distribution, unless you offer them some kind of sweetener. So let's say for 300 quid of your marketing budget, you could say to a bunch of critics, I would like you to come and see the film, let's say half a dozen um, representative critics, I would like you to come and see the film. Uh, I know you won't be able to write about it until we actually release it, but we'd like to take the temperature of the film. Would you give us your feedback uh, on the film for, you know, uh, for, for a, a small amount of money, let's say. Mm -hmm. And you're not paying them to write nice things. You're paying them for their professional opinion of the film, warts and all, good or bad, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, at yeah. that point, <clears throat> everybody wins because you're spending 300 quid on six critics at 50 quid each where you're asking them to write a couple of paragraphs on what they feel about the film and how many stars they would give it if they ended up writing a, a review of it down the line, right? If they come back and you get six critics who say, well, it's like, you know, two stars, three stars at best, don't show it to any more critics. Because that immediately tells you that this is not going to be a critical success and that you haven't made, um, you know, a, a, a film that's going to be received well by critics. And it was that simple. It cost you 300 quid and the hire of a Soho screening rooms or the hire, you know, the hire of, a, of one of the many uh, screening rooms in London. But the good thing is you've controlled the narrative because those critics are not then allowed to go out and write about your film until you've said it's okay for them to do so because you've paid them for their time, the same that they would probably get for a hundred word review or more if they're an online critic who's not used to being paid very much for their, for their work. So what I'm saying is there are ways to control the narrative without hiring a PR company, which costs you a couple of thousand quid um, at least, getting them to host a screening for you, inviting all the critics um, that they have on their list. Maybe, you know, only half a dozen of those critics would turn up because they've got a better offer or because there's the football on that night. Oh, football critics, no, that's not going to work. But, you know, they've, they've got other... Um, <laughs> or they just think, I don't know, I've never heard of that film. It hasn't got anybody in it that I, you know, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to sell that review ultimately, so maybe I won't go. So you I think, I think, I think off. I think, David, that's, that's a really, it's a really, really good practical way of of seeing where your film sits because I think what you're saying and correct me if I'm wrong 
is obviously if so if, if you go the other way if for example your six critics you paid 50 quid to come and watch your film and give you their warts and all feedback says do you know what this would be a three to four star movie this this is this is in that ballpark that's actually for an independent movie that word of mouth that critical acclaim might gather is a way of growing your movie but equally what you're saying is if you can find out early enough letting your film out for them to savage is not going to achieve anything good whatsoever so so I don't, I don't know what, I mean, I'm not a marketing expert, so I don't know what happens next for the independent filmmaker that doesn't know they can get critical acclaim. Or does it mean that there's critical acclaim elsewhere? So, I don't know, you've made a schlonky horror film, which is just Buckets of Blood. Well, that's never going to appeal to someone who wants to write for Sight and Sound in a million years, is it? Right. So there'd be no point ever inviting someone of that ilk to see your movie anyway, would there, in some sense? No, but, but if you know that you've made a film that, that might appeal... See, this is also about understanding critics, because mm -hmm. if you know you've made a film that, while the, the world at large might not be interested in seeing that film, certain critics, whether it's Billy Chainsaw, Kim Newman, Scott Weinberg, Anton Bittell, Howard Gorman, and, um, uh, you know, and, and a few others, um, might enjoy that film, mm. then offer to screen it to those guys. You know, I have, I have a whole list, and I'm sure you do, of, of uh, as well, of critics who will give you an honest assessment of a, you know, let's say low-budget British independent horror film, if you want to talk about those, mm. and they will do it for the same cost that they would, or the same price that they would get for an online review of any film. The difference is they're doing it for you. And I don't see anything wrong with that. And I, I did have a sort of ethical wobble about this, which is why I contacted the my colleagues at the Critics Circle, to say, is this okay? You know, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine, you know. So, basically... Well, you, well let's you, be honest, if you, if you were friends with Kim Newman or Anton Patel and you asked them to come and look at your film, what would be the difference? You'd still be seeking their professional opinion, wouldn't you? Well, that's true, and, and they're going to give you an honest opinion because now, I mean, this actually happened a, a couple of times where I've said to the makers of a... Um, of a horror movie that I've worked on. In fact, I'm now I'm thinking about it, I can name three or four where I've done this exact thing. Mm. And um, I've said to them, look, you need to show, I, I need some quotes to put in the trailer and you haven't showed this to critics yet and you, should, and you really should because it's good and they're going to give you good quotes. So why don't you send the link that you sent me to these five people and, you know, give them some money to review the film for you and use the, you know, the star rating that they've said that they would give you as a way to sell the film. It doesn't matter if it isn't necessarily or, or isn't yet linked to a publication. People who like horror movies will know that this person or that person is a trustworthy horror film reviewer. So if, they, if Scott Weinberg says, you know, it's a four-star film, then you're like, ooh, Scott Weinberg, he knows what he's talking about, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you can, yeah, that's absolutely something that you can do. And I, I've never had somebody come to me and say, an independent um, uh, filmmaker, and say, well, of course, we're going to screen it for the critics, but we're not going to let them publish anything about it until we're ready. So that's <laughs> never happened. This is always news to the, this is why I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you, because it's always news to the people that you, that you say, to. they're like, really? Of course, you want to control the narrative. Now, you don't even have to hire a PR company and 
um, and, and get them to set up a screening because there's no mystery to it. Anybody can stand at the door of Soho screening rooms and write down names as people come in. Anybody can email critics or contact them through the critic circle and say, hey, would you like to come and see a film? It's not quite ready yet. We're not ready for you to write about it, but we'd love to get you take the, the, the critical temperature. Anybody can do that. You can even send screening links. And when you send screening links, you open up a much greater possibility to get people to review the film if they're not in London. And bear in mind that, that, that unlike national and most other kinds of, of, um, uh, of UK film criticism, uh, where the film critics are all based in or around London and they're used to coming in to see films in London, um, normally in Soho, uh, at one of the, you know, seven or eight screening rooms that, you know, all of a sudden you open it up to people in other cities and people around the country where, and, and you open up a level of convenience that your film uh, screening might not otherwise have. Now, if you're absolutely sure that you want them to see it in a dark room on the big screen, and that is the best way that you can sell your film uh, mm. to the critics, um, then by all means do that. And if you can afford to hire a screening room, brilliant. But if you can't, I, if I had made a film for, for 300 quid and I wanted to spend another 300 quid getting it out to half a dozen critics to take the film's temperature, I could do that by simply setting up a, a password-protected Vimeo link and sending it out to critics who I know are smart enough to see a film on a Vimeo link and know how it's going to play in an audience. Critics are very, very smart at that kind of thing. We watch sometimes very big movies on very small screens, and we know how we know how they're going to play on a big screen. So, you oh, know, no, man, I, have, I have experience of this every year with um, with Fright Fest. I see a lot of movies before they get to the Fright Fest, so I can review, yeah. so I can review, review them ahead of Fright Fest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know how they're going to play. Mm. You, you absolutely know that, you know, I had a, a distributor recently who said, oh, I'm a bit nervous that it's not horror enough for Fright Fest, but it's still sort of a horror film. And I was like, you know what? The Fright Fest guys, what they care about is, is the movie good? And if it is, you know, even if it's 20% in the horror genre, you know some of the films that have played the best at Fright Fest have been films that you wouldn't necessarily think would be, you know, they're not like blood and guts and, you well, know, gory old, movies old or whatever. Boy so. would be, old Boy's an obvious one. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there you go. And I, I could probably name 20 more, given a, you know, long enough timeline. So, um, and, and you could too. So, this idea of when to uh, actually start screening it for critics is always tripped up by the fact that, that the producers are worried that the critics are going to savage their film publicly. But all you've got to do is be honest with them and say, look, we can't let you publish a review just yet. We'd like to find out what you think of it. Here's some money for your time. Give us exactly what you would say. You write, you know, maybe write us 100 words or a couple of paragraphs, as I say, and do that early. And if you get bad feedback, Never speak of it again. If you get good feedback, use that and say in your, in your um, uh, you know, whatever materials you're preparing it for the next group of people, whether it's festival um, bookers or whether it's sales companies or whether it's potential distributors or whether it's um, individual screens that you might want to, to get the film into, say, you know, look, it's got four-star reviews from these uh, critics that, who, whose names you may recognise, they work for these publications primarily or whatever and, and then you've got one more sales tool, now I'm not saying you can necessarily put that, you know, that you, you can't necessarily take that critical acclaim to the bank, 
But at least you've controlled the narrative, and at least you can, even if you only get, if you get divided critics and you get two or three good reviews, then obviously you focus on those. And that's something that you can also maybe put in your, your trailer. It sounds and to maybe, me as well, David, what you're saying is that when, when, when the sort of unprepared or inexperienced producer comes to you and you start to talk them through these ideas, what you're also seem to be saying is, this isn't a race now to get the film released. You, you've got some time on your hands because, let's be honest, nobody knows the film exists even though you've produced it. And while that, might mm -hmm. be a, while that might be a mammoth achievement in your life, as it will be for most people, you then don't have to just sprint the next ten yards and get it out and go, well, I've released it. Yeah. And then you've released what? You've released something that people don't like, that, that the wrong critics see, that can't get distribution because nobody's saying anything. Nobody, not, not even the right people are saying the good things about it and so on and so forth. So it sounds to me like the, there's, a, there's almost like just a note of caution to those people that, look, look, you've spent, you've spent six years getting investment to make this £100,000 movie. You, you, you managed to get that soap star in the lead role after six months of conversations. <laughs> so, so let's not just edit a trailer together and put it on YouTube and then just dump it on some VOD platform, and hopefully people will like it. That's kind of what you're, you're saying. That you know, give your film the best shot by doing by by doing some things that could help build on what you've got for not massive, not massive, much more massive amounts of investment in the movie itself. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the, to be honest, trailers aren't very expensive to produce. Mm. You may even find that. Um, you've made a film where the most... Uh, let, let's say you've got one really amazing scene mm -hmm. where you manage to get a, 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 you know, Sean Bean or somebody in for a, for, a, for a day. Yeah. And he's not a very big part of the film. Now, obviously, if you make a trailer mm -hmm. and he's only in, like, you only see him in one scene, mm -hmm. then you're going to realise, oh, he's not in the film very much. So you might say, actually... Or I might say, actually, maybe the trailer isn't the best way to go. Maybe the thing to do would be to put out a clip of that guy who's, you know, either already famous or has suddenly popped a bit and you ha just lucked into getting him in your film just before he popped. Why don't you put out a clip featuring that guy and, you know, whet the audience's appetite for it? Because what I find is the first thing that you put out on a film, yeah, it's, it, it should be... Whatever is going to make the audience's mind sticky for everything else, okay? If someone says to you, oh, uh, there's a film called uh, Sticky Moments coming up, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. you're like, oh, okay, what's that about then? And you give them a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, give them a little bit. They'll have forgotten it by the next day. But if you show them a very, very funny 12-second clip, and then at the end it has the title Sticky Moments, mm -hmm. You'll find, oh, all of a sudden, next time you hear the phrase, sticky moments, I don't know why I picked sticky moments. No, but I'm liking this campaign ne already. Next time you hear the phrase, <laughs> sticky moments, you're going to be, your brain is going to go, bing, and it's going to remember that I have, ex this is what you, the process your brain is going to go through in a nanosecond. I have experienced something to do with sticky moments before, mm. and I enjoyed it. So, therefore, I would like more of that. So, that's why... When you, you know, when you follow whatever the first thing, um, uh, the first thing you put out there is so critically important because everything you follow it up with then is already building on the first thing that they saw. But if the first thing that you put out there was a, a, a crappy collage poster that your 
that your nephew made because he knows how to do the Photoshop, you know, um, then that is the th that's going to hurt you because you're you're not going out there with the best thing that you possibly can. So you've got to make sure that even though it's tempting when you're shooting the film or when you finish the film, you've got some nice cast shots that you've pulled from the film. And I would say this again, uh, say this as well. When you're looking at uh, putting a poster together, yeah. you might have an amazing. A uh, photo shoot that you did on one of the days of the film because you're smart enough to know that oh the actors are going to look really good they're all going to be in costume this is the perfect day we'll get a big you know backdrop do the nice green screen um, uh, get them against the green screen we'll shoot all the actors in, in their ensemble together they're all going to be in character blah 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 and you're so excited about it that you look at this photography at the end of the at the end of the shoot and say oh that's going to be the poster it's amazing. Well, somebody who's a professional poster designer might actually watch the film and say, actually, that shot of the two of two of the characters in a car together with rain on the windshield, with uh, a moody background, and one of them's looking like you know uh, they've just uh, revealed something awful, uh, and the other one's looking at them as if to say, well, you know, well, all of a sudden you've got this single image that will draw in the. Um, uh, that will draw in the audience, and you haven't thought about it because you're so excited about the the, the um, you know the special shoot that you did or whatever. You haven't stopped to think: Is this the the grabbiest image I could possibly put together? Because at the end of the day, <clears throat> if you've got five actors who you're sort of vaguely interested in, then that's fine. But is it going to compete with you know the the film that's next to yours that's got the Rock, Jason Statham. No, no. I mean, I, I, I interviewed uh, the director of I'm Not a Serial Killer recently, and and I talked to him about that. And I said, I said, do you know, I came across your film. I was walking through Holborn Tube, and I had to stop and look at your poster. It mm. caught my it caught my attention that much. Yeah. Because it and, and and if you look at it and watch the film, it's it's not it doesn't tell you anything about the film, but it gives you a sense. Of the film because it's not a recognisable face, but no. it's a strong image, and obviously the words "I'm not a serial killer" obviously yeah. have their own connotations. But it was done really; it was done with. And, and, and having asked that question, it, and, you know, that was something that they had thought about. You know, it, yeah, it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. This wasn't a happy accident. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and in fact, I mean, I, I don't know which necessarily which post you're talking about because there was a, an amazing illustrated poster that was, there was done there by was, not there was, serial killer. There was four done altogether. There was even a Russian futurist version. It's <laughs> right. There, there was excellent. There, they they really sort of you know for festivals and things like that. They they tried. They used different imagery and stuff and 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 really because because they didn't you know they had. Christopher Lloyd in it, but if they'd have put Christopher Lloyd as the as a face of the poster, it wouldn't have sold. The, it would like you were talking about before with with kind of the idea of a celebrity. It wouldn't have sold the film any better. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah. uh, you know, same with you. They may have been excited that they had. I think um, uh, I can't remember the name of the. Um, is it Laura Fraser who's in it yeah, as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and obviously, you know, Max Records is is incredible in the film, um, but. You're right that none of those faces are really going to sell um, are really going to sell the film. But then you look at something like where you've just got a person's face, even if you don't recognise the face, if it's in a compelling enough situation or it has a certain expression on it. I mean, look at the poster for Tony Erdman, 
who on earth could have looked through the first two and a half hours of that film and thought, oh, that's the shot I want on the poster. And then five or ten minutes from the end, when he turns up in the big furry costume and, you know, his daughter hugs him, and you look at that, and, I mean, Soda Pictures now, um, Trafalgar Pictures, you know, did a Trafalgar releasing. Um, they did an amazing job of, of doing that perfect thing, what I call a synecdoche, you know, that one single image that doesn't sum up what the film is about. So you look at it and say, oh, I know, it's about people who are in relationships with people who like dressing up in fur costumes. No, it's not that. It's mad and quirky, and it has some, you know, uh, a tactile quality that, you know, other films don't have. Somehow, that single image impossibly sums up what Tony Erdman is. And it makes you, every time you see that image, you, it's unmistakably Tony Erdman. And obviously, you've got a great title in I Am Not a Serial Killer. That's a really, that's a pretty grabby title. Mm. But... You know, you don't have any stars, so what do you do? And what, obviously what they decided to do is, A, produce a number of different, you know, this, isn't, this, this sounds like you, you, um, you can't make up your mind, but actually what they did is they created different um, images for, for, for different elements of the audience, perhaps. Um, well, you know, well you the, could... the one I saw was designed for UK audiences. It was different right. from the one that was used in America, for example. And, and so, you know, you've also got that situation where um, uh, you've also got that situation where you may think that the photography that you have in the film is really good and, and therefore you should use it in the film. But actually, an illustrated poster would be more arresting than the, the best uh, photography you could come up with or a conceptual poster. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't hire a professional poster company, mm. but if you go on to Poster Spy or alternativemovieposters.com, you will find literally hundreds of artists who would be willing to come up with poster concepts for your film that you, uh, where they are looking at it from a purely design perspective and they will come up with ideas that you never imagined anybody would and they will do it very cheaply. Whereas if you hire a, you know, a, 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 um, a poster design company, you're going to spend a few thousand pounds and, and hopefully end up with something amazing. Now, you can come up with a poster design that you always had in mind because when you were... Uh, you know, when you were 13 years old and you first dreamed up the idea of, of, um, uh, of making the film that you've now finally, 20-odd uh, years later, have, have finally managed to make, you may have sketched out on your school exercise book the perfect poster for that film. But now you're trying to make it up from the photography in that film or you're trying to, you know, think what's the best way to put it together. You can simply hand that sketch, as I often do, because I'm no poster, uh, I, I can't, design posters, but I can find an iconic image that I think would work as a poster, and I will then hand it to the poster designer, and they'll put all the, you know, the billing blocks, and the, they'll make it look into a professional poster, and that doesn't really cost as much as having a poster company concept 30 different poster designs that could possibly be the design for your film. So again, I'm, tr I'm saying that there are, are inexpensive ways to do things that cost a lot of money. You may end up with something fantastic from someone in Estonia who you would never have found if it wasn't for PosterSpy. So you go onto PosterSpy.com, you browse all their poster designers, 
and then you say, hey, I really like that guy's work, and I think that would fit really well with the film. But so far, he's only done Alien, Thor, The Dark World, and Justice <laughs> League, because he's a superhero fanboy. But what would he do if I said, can you do... And, uh, Believe me, I've done this myself. I recently um, uh, commissioned a book cover design from um, from a guy that I, uh, actually a girl, sorry, I found on Posted Spy who lives in the Ukraine. And uh, it was mad because I had to go through some, jump through some real hoops to be able to send her money because PayPal doesn't operate for Ukraine or whatever. But I basically paid her for this book design because I saw her work and I knew she would be absolutely perfect for it. So I sketched something out with my finger on my five-year-old's uh, paint program on on, on, a, on on an iPad, took a screenshot of it, emailed it to this person in Ukraine and said, right, can you sort of do me a design for that? And then, mm. you know, I got the... Because uh, 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 it was an illustration. It wasn't like a photocomp, you know. It was, yeah, I, yeah, I needed yeah. an illustration. She did the illustration. And then I got my poster design guys to put the... Um, uh, to put all the text on it in the right font. And, you know, that's something else that we should talk about, actually, the design aspect of tying together the trailer, the poster, all of the marketing materials. Be confident your title style that you used in your film for whatever font you chose when you put the, t when you put the opening titles together doesn't have to be the font that you use on the poster. There's no law that says you, you've got to, you, you've got, you, you know. But you'd be amazed that people say, oh, you know, this is the, the font we chose. Yes, but that's not gonna, that's not gonna work in the, in the trailer or it's not gonna work for the poster because it's too over-designed and you can't have critics quotes in that font, you know. So there's another thing you've got to think of. What is the type style of your film? And is it appropriate for the poster, the, the, um, the little Instagram videos you're going to make, the Facebook videos, the, the trailer, the teaser, all of the other peripheral stuff, is it, going to, is it going to work for that? Or should you say to the, the uh, people who are doing the first thing, whether that's the poster or the trailer, you know, you, you do what you think is right, and then we'll talk about that. And then once you've picked it, keep a consistent look, because again, every time, it's sort of this is a more ambient effect, but every time somebody sees something to do with your film, it will help um, the, the, the little um, sort of memory thing. It's an, it's an aid memoir if they've seen it in the same, if they see it in the same font all of the time. Now, David, I'm aware I'm, aware I'm taking up a lot of your time. You're very generous here. So let's remind people, what's the name of the co your company then? Oh, yeah, it's, um, it's Synchronicity 2. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm assuming from what you've said that obviously people making feature films out there are, can, are, are sort of potential clients of yours that you can grow relationships with. So I presume on your website and stuff, there's contact details where people can send through. I mean, I guess it's, it's that first sort of cold call to you. What, what information are you looking for from a filmmaker, you know, to... To, to, to sort of take to be potentially taking them on, or is it, or is it a chat over a coffee? You know, is it, you know. Yeah, kind of. I mean, the thing is, uh, or just over the phone or whatever. I mean, um, by the way, we're at synchronicityfilm.com. Okay. Uh, just to just to be confusing, um, but um, <laughs> they are thinking about how I can either maximise my self distribution. Um, then, obviously, we're always happy to have uh, to have advice or give advice about when they should start, you know, the PR process, wh what kind of poster um, they should have out there, when they should start looking at social media, what kind of social media they need, um, and, uh, you know, whether they need a trailer 
at all at this stage or whether a clip from the film might be a better way to put the film out for the first time. As I said, there's all these questions mm. that, that sort of need to be addressed and there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Obviously, it depends on the film you've got, when you're planning to release it, what the comps are, what kind of, uh, what kind of films are going to be out the same weekend, potentially, as your film and how it's going to cut through. And, but, you know, as you know... There are five or six around the country, in, among the 20 or so films that are released every week, um, only you know, some of which get reviewed in the press, um, there are some really good films. You know, there isn't, like, The Guardian doesn't do this week's five-star review and, and this week's four-star review. They don't grade on a curve. Yeah. You know, if there are three five-star review, uh, five-star reviewed films or must-see movies released in one week, well, the chances are people aren't going to go and see two of them. You know, they're going to pick one. So you've also got to be thinking about what am I going to do to, to not just release the film because I'm so excited about releasing it, but also being aware that there are other films out there, you know, um, and, and you're going to have to work extra hard to get people to see your amazing five-star documentary or, or drama or horror film or whatever when there's something that's, you know, equally tempting um, out the same day or the same week. So all of those things kind of have to be factored in at, at a fairly early stage. And obviously you'll get a lot of advice from um, whichever person you've chosen to do your um, distribution or... Um, or if you've decided to kind of um, screw your courage to the stick in place and do it yourself, mm -hmm. uh, then you, you'll kind of have an idea of what you think is best for your um, what you think is, be is best for your film. But you do need to address these questions often and early and make sure that you're kind of giving your film the best shot in the marketplace. No, no, it sounds like, it sounds like a lot a lot of this this almost like pre-planning to sell your film. Is, is as important as what you choose as tactics to sell your film because ultimately that's what's going to design them, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's all, always worth thinking about that stuff. And fair enough, you're busy while you're making the film and, it's, and during post-production, but at some point you need to be thinking about, right, when do I, get, when do I have enough to be able to give... This. Oh, I'll tell you one more thing as well, which is worth mentioning. Cool. Um, you know, oftentimes we get um, people who are who have uh, made independent films will say, "Ah, but um, we don't quite have a picture lock yet." Um, so as soon as we have the picture lock and we've done the grading and we give you the and we can give you the ProRes and the audio splits, then you can go ahead and make the trailer. And what we actually say is, you know what? While you're still editing the film, you can just give us a low-res playout of the film. And whatever audio you can manage, you know, clean dialogue and clean music is normally enough. Don't worry too much about the effect. And we can already be working on it because okay. we will then, when we all get to a cut that we agree on and we actually want to make something that we're going to put online, by that stage, you know, if you wait till the film is graded and mixed and everything is, is finished on it, you've then got the film sitting sitting there while we spend the next few weeks or however long making the trailer and getting the trailer out there whereas you could have been working on that on that in advance and then you know what we call iMatch with the final version of the of the feature so remember that while it's just on a on a editing machine somewhere it's all kind of it's just we're working from a rough version of the film we often work with spoiled materials from big studios of course mm. and then we'll replace it shot by shot 
when it's approved with the actual shots from the film. So don't feel like you have to wait until you finish post-production before you start thinking about these things. That is very good advice. Well, look, David, thank you very much for your time on the BritFlix podcast. No problem. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer.